Good morning. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University, broadcasting live from the Richard Philip Cavallero Studio South. Welcome to the Thursday edition of Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call, where we're talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm your producer, Becca Williams, joined today by Rachel Lucher and Luke Farrell. We've got a lot to talk about this morning, so we're going to jump right in with something that has been all over the news and probably all over your mind. You might have noticed that this winter has been especially warm in New York, with much less snow than we're used to. According to a new analysis released by the EU's Copernicus Climate Change Service, this weather phenomenon has been building up for almost the last decade. The past seven years have been the warmest on the planet, and Earth's temperature is continuing to rise. While you might not have noticed a slow increase in heat, you have definitely seen the effects, even if you don't realize it. The melting in the Arctic, deadly floods in China, heat waves in the northeastern U.S. and Canada leaving hundreds dead, and extreme droughts throughout the majority of the U.S. These disasters are a direct result of fossil fuel emissions trapping heat onto our planet. In 2015, world leaders agreed to limit the increase of temperature to only 2 degrees Celsius. However, only six years later, and we've already crossed the one-degree threshold and are on track to see temperatures rise 2.7 degrees Celsius by 2030. Now, this temperature rise is not something to take lightly at all. 2.7 degrees Celsius rise on our planet, that is a deadly increase. We're witnessing these natural disasters. Imagine how worse it's going to be in two years' time. This is catastrophic for our planet and deadly for us. I think the other issue with this is that a lot of the times, you know, you kind of look across the world and it's like, well, the whole world's not, you know, warming up. Well, it's because it's, you know, a global change that's going on, right? It could be in one spot. It could be rising sea levels and things like that. Sometimes it could be, you know, freezing your temperatures in certain areas, mm-hmm. um, depending on where you are. So it's really just what are you going to do with that? You have like, you know, the Maldives that you know, are kind of sinking under with their islands and things like that. That might be the same fate with us in a couple of years. I mean, if our sea levels keep going up, that could also be the result. So. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And even it's not just impacting humans, but also wildlife and animals so it affects us as a whole as a planet Um, and we have a very special interview later where our guest talks about how it's become politicized um, but politics is necessary to move forward in um, helping this climate crisis Mm -hmm. and we even though we've been seeing all these warnings and reports like um, this one from the EU regarding emissions we still saw in 2021 businesses continuing to burn greenhouse gases. Actually, they went up from 2020. Emissions increased 6.2% in just one year, despite all of these warnings saying that, you know, we're basically have nine, well, eight, I guess it's 2022 now, eight years left of comfortably living. And this isn't even something that we can go back and reverse at this point. This is more of a, we have to try to maintain what we have right now. Right. There's no way to reverse and go back to what life was like pre uh greenhouse gas emissions like the the best that we can do right now is try to maintain where we are right now and just kind of have to deal with the environmental effects that are going to come along with all the damage that we've done i think in terms of businesses they're more focused on the short-term effects of making money and, and making profits i think that when it comes down to corporate america deciding between making profits in the short term compared to protecting the environment in the long term, most businesses 
will focus on the short-term effects of just making money. And it's sad that all of this has become commercialized and that climate change has been swept under the rug until it's too late. Mm -hmm. And I I think one of the main issues with that is like, how do you change people's minds? You know, when someone's like so set in their ways on what they think, it's really hard to kind of turn them around. It's kind of like a really hard game of operation where you have the smallest bit of tweezers and you're trying to get that thing out and the buzzer (laughs) just keeps going and going off. You know, there's really no way in changing that effect. Um, But nevertheless, you know, you have all these world leaders coming together for certain conferences. Paris Climate Accord, of course, being one of the latest ones. I think there was a CP20, I know, that was in Copenhagen, I believe, if I remember correctly. I might have been wrong on that. Um, But nevertheless, they had all the world leaders going around trying to hope that there's something to salvage out of this. But in the end, it really is going to take everyone, not necessarily just politicians, to make this happen. Yeah. And then, I don't know about you guys, but I have sort of a, like, crisis within myself of, like, does anything that I do actually matter when it comes to climate change? Like, does one single person recycling, of course that adds up, but in the grand scheme of things, it's obviously these big businesses that are doing the majority of the damage. And then it comes down to us and we personally feel all the guilt, each person specifically, but is there really much that we can do? What do you guys think? I was about to bring that up. I feel like as one singular person, it's hard to make a real difference, but I think us as journalists, we have the ability to bring listeners information from experts and we have the ability to make a change in that sense. Yeah, definitely. Luke, what do you think? I, I think the other spot with that is that even though, you know, we're one country as a whole as the United States, there's all the other countries out there in the world that might have different situations or different ideas on how to deal with the climate who may not think that climate change is a real occurrence. So, so that could also be an issue. Um, but I think, you know, no matter what we put collectively together, I don't know if it necessarily is going to add up to much change, just depending on where we've already gone so far um, within what we've done. So Yeah, very true. Something else that I was reading that I wanted to bring up was uh, natural gases. So natural gases is, is what has been used in place of things like oil and coal because they're more environmentally friendly. Uh, but last year, we saw the natural gas prices rise up more than 180 percent, which caused people to use it less and start turning more to more more towards coal for uh, electricity and he- water heating in their house. So this also we have to think about, you know, people of lower income that are faced with these challenges of, you know, using more environmentally friendly products and uh, methods to heat their home and have electricity, which is something that everyone needs they're faced with either that at a higher price point or something that is going to harm our environment but is more affordable to them. So we have to keep that in mind as well. Exactly. And isn't it really ironic how, you know, companies push this whole, you know, environment-friendly type of initiative to make money? Like, isn't that Mm -hmm. so ironic that they they drive prices higher because it is marketing? They're going to get people to pay that price point because they think it's better for the environment. But the the actual companies don't care because if they did, they would make prices lower and more affordable. And even what you mentioned about coal, I believe coal is a non-renewable resource. I remember from science class. I'm pretty sure. Uh, So that's not a good sign. Yeah, definitely not. (laughs) Well, we have an expert coming on in just a couple minutes now. Uh, So we'll be right back. Make sure you stay tuned because you're definitely going to want to hear this. Go be on the track with Music Biz Buzz. Welcome to Music Biz Buzz. Your source. Your, your, your source for the latest in the music industry. Straight from the pros. Start with the clap. 
You never know what's next for music and for broadcasting. Figure out what works, what doesn't work. Put in a full effort, give the best opportunity for the artists and the music to succeed. KD Egan hosts Music Biz Buzz. New episodes Wednesdays at 4 p.m. on 88.7 FM. Radio Offshore University. You are listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call on 88.7 FM, Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call do not reflect the views of Hofstra University, 88.7 FM, WRHU, as well as its management. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Your morning show team will be back right after these updates. All right, and we're back on Thursday Morning Wake Up Call. We have a very special guest coming on today, Dr. Carl Schlusner. He is the head of climate change science at Climate Analytics and group leader at Humboldt University in Berlin. And Rachel and Luke had the experience of being able to interview him uh, across the waters. So, guys, how did that go? Yeah, I mean, it was a good time. We definitely had a very informative discussion, which was really nice. Uh, we got a lot of insights, which is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely a good spot to highlight when it comes to climate change and things like that. Definitely from a great expert, too. So certainly something that was very good. He was awesome. And I even asked him about how he got into this field and science and climate change. And he said that he was a physicist for a while and then went to a seminar about climate change and immediately got hooked. And, and then he said, you know, I can I can do this. I can make a difference. Um, so I, I think that the points he brought to the table that he spoke with us about were very interesting. And um, even the ongoing debate uh, in, in science research, you know, my best friend is a uh, she's studying um, environmental engineering and she goes to seminars where they discuss is climate change attributed to humans only? Is it really all our fault or some people also say that it's inevitable and that we can't stop this and that it's not our fault. And Dr. Schlusner said that it's definitely attributed to humans and that we can make the problem better because we caused it. You know, he did bring a lot of optimism in this interview. So I'm very look- I'm looking forward to uh, hearing this again and, and just bringing his insight to Long Island. Yeah, that's great. Optimism is really what we need right now, especially with such a dark topic. So uh, without Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Hofstra Morning Dr. Wake Carl Up Call. Schlesner. We're here today with uh, Dr. Carl Schlossner. He's the head of climate science at Climate Analytics and the group leader at Humboldt University, right, well, Berlin. Thank you for joining us today. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Good morning. So you do a lot of research in general about climate and things like that. Do you just want to go over an overview of your research and what you do in your profession? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a broad engagement on, on different topics in climate science. You know, it's a very broad and interdisciplinary question. We are looking at how we are already changing our planet today, what evidence we, we can find in that regard. And, you know, the climate crisis is something that's very much upon us today. It's nothing that's going to happen in the far distant future. You'll see it signs all over the globe and we see it ever more clearly emerging. Indeed, the scientific community is increasingly more certain that we are probably currently already experiencing the hottest period in probably more than 100,000 years of sustained warming. And we can see the effects everywhere. We can see increased extreme events like heat waves and wildfires, extreme precipitation and flooding, more intense uh, tropical cyclones, but also, you know, more gradual changes like ever changing seasons, melting glaciers, melting ice sheets, changes in ocean circulation and, and other things. And indeed, we did, for example, a big machine learning based study of all the evidence out there on climate impacts, reviewing more than 100,000 different peer reviewed publications all over the globe. And we found that the vast majority of global population, more than 85%, are currently already experiencing 
impacts of climate change on a day-to-day -day basis documented in the scientific literature. So um, this is some of the elements that I'm, I'm, I'm working on. And then I'm, of course, asking myself, what can we do to avoid the climate catastrophe? So to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, to limit global warming to one and a half degrees, and also outline the benefits of doing so. So with your research that you do in terms of you know, things on the climate and things like that, one thing that you tend to write about a lot specifically is the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit. I don't know if you want to explain more about that or what that is. Yes, of course. So um, it is one indicator, so to say, that we use uh, um, for kind of to measure the, the planetary health is the global mean temperature. And if you want to think about it, maybe think about your body temperature. You have a healthy body temperature between 36 and 37 degrees Celsius. Bear with me, I'm not so good in kind of doing on-the-fly calculations in Fahrenheit, so I might stick to a European, <laughs> a European unit here. Apologies. But if we have heightened body temperature, we not feel well. And if we have more than 38.5 degrees Celsius, we are definitely sick. And it's a little bit like that with, with our planetary health. The more we increase, increase the global thermostat, the more unhealthy we are feeling on this planet, the more impacts we are seeing of climate change, the more we are moving outside the weather and climate conditions that we're used to, that our cities are built to sustain, that our ecosystems can deal with, uh, and so on. And we are increasingly identifying that around one and a half degrees and beyond that level, climate impacts becoming ever more severe. So to be very clear, this, this limit is not a scientific limit. There's not a scientific council in the world that's saying, this is what you need to do. It is a political limit, and that's probably even more powerful because the leaders of this world have committed themselves in the Paris Agreement to uh, uh, limit global temperature rise to that level in order to avoid the most dangerous impacts of climate change. So they have looked at the scientific evidence, scientists have written thousands of pages of um, scientific assessments provided in policymakers and so on, and this is kind of the outcome of it. It's a bit like a, a focal point of the debate. It is a number that helps to guide climate action, and therefore it's quite important to kind of uh, further outline what the implications of, for example, exceeding uh, such a warming limit are. And you mentioned politics, how this has become a political issue. Do you think that our politicians in our world are taking this issue as seriously as they should? And do you think that politics belong in science and climate change? If we want to solve this global climate crisis, it can only be a political solution. So. The answer to your second question is absolutely yes, only with a political solution and a political global solution. So really a solution that takes everyone, brings everyone on board and bridges also political gaps between countries that may have frictions for other reasons can be, success, uh, can we be successful to uh, tackle the climate crisis. So I think it's, it's and, and there is not just one kind of politician, right? There are a lot of politicians who take this crisis very seriously, and I think it's very encouraging to see changes in the global landscape. In all countries, uh, uh, people speaking up, and, and you know, we're seeing increasing climate action all over the globe. And then there are legates. And then there are even people who still deny that there is something like human-made climate change, although the scientific evidence is, is absolutely certain. It's like denying gravity. So, so there is not a black and white picture, and I think there's a lot of dynamic in the political sphere. And I want to touch on one point that, that probably is quite important in terms of this global balance of, of these questions. It's we have already caused a lot of climate change. And the reason or the main driver of climate change is carbon dioxide, the most common greenhouse gas. It's the key source that warms our planet. 
And this is accumulating in the atmosphere like in a bathtub. So as long as we keep emitting CO2, we keep warming the planet. And this means we need to get to net zero CO2 emissions in order to stop global warming. And this is also increasingly accepted as a political goal. But this also means all countries all over the world need to contribute to that. It's not enough if just half of the countries actually go to net zero and the other half keeps emitting, the planet will still warm. So the only, cha uh, the only chance we have is really to do this together. And that's why the political process around international diplomacy, the Paris Agreement and the climate negotiations is so crucial for it. Right. And going back to the beginning, when you began to describe the conditions we're seeing right now, including wildfires and rising temperatures, what can that look like? And what are some projections in the 2030s of what we could be dealing with if we don't stop this problem actively and efficiently? From where we are today, we are seeing that we are experiencing increasingly unprecedented climate change. So if you had a heat wave in the, uh, in the northwestern US and Canada, that scientists are certain wouldn't have happened without human-made climate change. And to give you an idea, so this is, and this is a rare event today. So this is still something that wouldn't, wouldn't occur too frequently, thank God. But if we warmed the global thermostat further, so if we went to two degrees Celsius, such an event could happen every five to 10 years or events that could be even more severe than that. So we will, if, if, we, if our planet is a slowly responding system, so we will, even if we start all action now to, uh, to get us on a trajectory towards limiting warming to one and a half degrees, climate change would still get worse. It will get worse until we reach net zero emissions, which would be at kind of the best estimates that we have scientifically around mid-century. So climate, climate impacts would still intensify over the next decades. However, the intensification would slow down. It would get slower and slower. And, and at the point where we kind of bring global warming to a halt, most climate impacts, not all, would also currently move to a new kind of stable climate. And that's a choice we have, really. We can solve climate change within one generation on the realm of the Paris Agreement, or we can have to deal with climate change for centuries to come. Because if we fail to do so, impacts will ever more intensify and warming will continue probably throughout this whole century and beyond, leaving a, a very a planet very different than what we know today to you know our grandchildren and beyond. So one one big thing that you like to prioritize, of course, your basis in your academic research that you do. So what would you say is a really big key in having importance of research in academia for your topic, as well as how can governments benefit that research as well? Well, it's I think I think there there are different entry points. So I think it is it is important for governments to, and for the global public to understand what we're dealing with when we're dealing with the climate crisis and what you know, the consequences of inaction or insufficient action are. And the climate crisis is a crisis where going in the right direction but too slow is also wrong. Like doing nothing is of course kind of heading towards a catastrophe, but doing too little also doesn't help. We really need, like we're dealing with the laws of physics and we are, they, they are not negotiable. So there's no middle ground towards you know, getting to zero emissions. What is also equally important is, of course, to try uh, and, and support finding solutions, finding solutions in terms of, you know, reducing emissions, illustrating how the global transformation can look like, and also what the co-benefits are for wider sustainable development. But then at the same time, also kind of supporting communities, policymakers, municipalities across all levels in terms of their actions to adapt to climate change. Because it's not an option to, you know, just sit out and, and try to 
to sit through the storm, we also need to change our, our lives and we need to protect ourselves against the impacts that are upon us. And we need to change the way our cities are constructed. We need to really transform our societies into a climate resilient society going forward. And this also requires a lot of science and a lot of dialogue with society. And I'm quite excited about this. I, I find it extremely interesting to, to kind of engage with actors from all different levels, from youth activists to local municipality policymakers to the global level and understand their perspectives on the problem and how climate change is interacting with the things they are dealing with uh, and how my science can support them in hopefully, you know, striving for a better uh, climate resilient future for all of us. That's a great point when you talk about not just sitting through the storm, but actually taking action. And finally, bringing this issue back to Long Island, thinking about the geography and the features we have here. How will climate change and issues you've been talking about impact people on Long Island? And what is something you wish people would know about climate change in general? Well, one thing that, that, that comes to mind immediately is, of course, the issue of, of sea level rise. It's, it's not the only one, but it is, it, is, it is one that's very pertinent. And there is something that is an aspect you know, that we probably not, not talk about enough in terms of our standing and how we're changing global coastlines. You, you can never really know what kind of stays in human history from your generation. But what we know for sure is that our climate legacy will be felt at the global coastline for centuries to come. So sea level rise, because of the slow processes of the ocean and the big ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica, will continue to rise for centuries, if not millennia, even you know, after our emissions have long ceased. We've done a study just to, to illustrate that, for example, and every five years in delay of climate action now, well, not 2020, but 2025, not 2025, but 2030, and so on, within 2300, so that's, you know, far away, but it's a very steady process, leads to about 20 centimeters of global sea level rise. That doesn't sound much, but it's as much as we have had over the last 250 years. And it's a commitment, it's a legacy, you know, humans in centuries to go, and certainly the population of Long Island, will feel the consequences of our actions today long beyond anything else that, that probably will last from us. And I think that's, you know, climate change is a lot about the urgency of action and big, big urgency in tackling that problem and also tackling all the impacts that we see around the globe. But when we take a step back and look at this Earth system as a whole and then sea level, but also big, big ice sheets and glaciers are, you know, very strong signs of this, there's a legacy, a legacy that believe on that planet and coastal communities will, will, will be very much at the front line of this legacy. Well, Doctor, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. We learned a lot from this discussion and we're excited to bring you on your airwaves. Thanks a lot. Pleasure. Thank you again to Dr. Schlusner for that wonderful perspective on climate change. Uh, I especially appreciated that little end uh, segment that we talked about sea level rising. That's especially a huge concern for us on Long Island. Exactly. Long Island is literally three sides are surrounded by water. So, um, Becca, what was your biggest takeaway and what are your thoughts from that interview? I would say my biggest takeaway is when he talked about us not doing anything, that we can't not do anything and we can't do too little either. Right. We have to be kind of all in on this because this is not only our future, but it's the future of the human race. It's the future of the generations that come after us, if there's even going to be able to be generations that come after us. You know what I mean? So... We have to do this not only for ourselves, but just for everyone on the planet. And as he said, we can't just sit down. We have to be active. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad and I'm hopeful that there is a, a way to make a difference and there is a way to reverse this. Hopefully we can get around to that when we can, if that's the case. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, thank you again to Dr. Schlusner. It was wonderful to have him on this morning. We're going to cut to a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to have Luke Furl talking about uh, some COVID and some sports-related things. So stay tuned. Long Island's largest radio news team brings you the Associated Press award-winning program, Newsline. Weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Exclusively on WRHU-FM and WRHU.org Radio Hofstra University. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call do not reflect the views of Hofstra University, 88.7 FM WRHU, as well as its management. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Your Morning Show team will be back right after these updates. Welcome back to the Morning Wake Up Call, everybody. Uh, so I don't know about you all, but I don't know if you all like tennis. Do you enjoy watching tennis, anything like that? Not really. I, I only like baseball and hockey, but I can respect tennis. I think it's fun to play. But I know we have a great story about um, tennis and COVID coming up. Yeah, no. So pretty much what happened is Novak Djokovic, uh, he's going down for the Australian Open. He's won the event nine times. He's the you know tied for most Grand Slam wins all time in tennis. Uh, and pretty much he uh, isn't vaccinated for COVID. Uh, and when he went down to Australia, he got a visa exemption to go down there if that was the case. Uh, but then he got detained by the immigration services over there. And then he actually had to go like into a whole court case. Uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison got involved in Australia. And nonetheless, he has been allowed uh, to try and uh, go to the event. Uh, but then he also admitted it was actually yesterday in an Instagram post uh, that actually he did break protocols before that time, uh, before he had even gotten to Australia. Australia, so that was a whole deal. Um, but this is also as like Australia's had over a hundred thousand new COVID like daily cases coming up. Uh, Scott Morrison's facing a re-election campaign in May, so there's a whole bunch of things going on uh, in particular with this story. But I guess for your thoughts and whatnot, what do athletes or anybody in a public position or things like that? Um, what do they really, I guess, have an influence on uh, in the world as well? But in particular, I guess with COVID, if that's the sense. Well, a lot of people look up to, especially sports players in the media, uh, even like small children. I know like when I was little and my brothers were little, there were a lot of football players that they looked up to in the media. And I mean, maybe he doesn't want this sort of power, but at this point, he just has to kind of accept that he has that and he has to set an example for other people. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I think this is this is a little shocking that this even happened, to be honest. I think Luke posed a great question in terms of the influence, and Becky, you kind of elaborated on that, but, you know, an athlete can not get vaccinated, and that kind of encourages uh, his fans to also not get vaccinated, and I think that's especially dangerous, but on the flip side, if somebody is vaccinated and they do, you know, tweet about it or kind of encourage other people to get the vaccine, I think that's a very, very positive step. And I think sometimes the problem with a lot of athletes is all this like idol worship that they seem to get. It's almost like they're godlike in a sense. You know, they can't do no wrong no matter what they do to their fans. Exactly. Um, Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, I think that's certainly an issue that we probably have not only in our culture, but across the world like that. Um, And that hopefully we can bring about, um, you know, better, you know, worship of people that actually can do good within society rather than, oh, you know, you swing a tennis racket or you swing a golf club and now you're going to be someone that I can really look up to. With that. <laughs> exactly. It's like all, all this drama comes from athletes who are who are the best. Like this happens in our country, too, especially um, with Kyrie Irving, which I'll talk about later. But it seems like 
these really pretentious athletes make this decision to not get vaccinated, even though the rest of the league gets vaccinated, everyone else complies with the vaccine. But it, all this drama comes from the people that think that they are the head of their sport. Mm-hmm. And the people uh, like the Australian government in this situation or, you know, the team manager, I don't really know things about sports, but whoever is in charge of this, <laughs> they have to kind of set an example. Right. Uh, you know, you can't just let one player slide with it because then what's to stop all of the players from doing the same? You know, if you're going to have this uh, rule that says, you know, get vaccinated, uh, then you can't just let one person not get it and still let them have all of the uh, the same things that the other players are getting. Like, you know, they're talking about, is he going to get to play in the open or not? And I feel like if if he's not the only one unvaccinated, the Australian government really has to set an example with him specifically, especially with the amount of new cases they're seeing daily. This is just a matter of keeping everybody that's also going to participate in the open safe. And, you know, the the bystanders and the people that are coming to watch, like, this is a matter of just keeping the event virus free for everyone exactly and keeping the event safe and Mm -hmm. going back to what you mentioned about rules if one person breaks it what's to say no one else will break it Um, and also vaccine mandates for other diseases are extremely common and required Uh, schools won't admit students without certain vaccinations and that's not only on a grade school level but also up to the college level Uh, when i entered as a freshman i had to get a number of vaccines Mm -hmm. before stepping on hofstra's campus yeah, but I think the other thing in terms of stuff with tennis, of course, is that it's kind of like an individual sport for the most part. There's really no teams you're a part of. There's like an organizing body, of course. Right. Um, but overall, it's kind of like an individual on that spot. So um, th- it's definitely a tricky situation to have in that sense. Um, certainly, he should be vaccinated, if I was to think. Um, but nevertheless, uh, he himself is being like, well, I, you know, he's against vaccines and things like that. So he chooses not to get them. Um, but even the Serbian prime minister is like, he will comply if necessary necessary to the Australian government if he needs uh, for any protocol uh, that were to be in place. So definitely even government officials getting involved in these like sports and political like combination of mm-hmm. tussles and whatnot uh, is definitely interesting to see. But Rachel, you were going to talk about the Nets and whatnot. Was that also... And that's a good point. One just one thing about that, though, tennis is a very individual sport. But in terms of travel, it's so messy because the the risk is really high with that. And we've Mm -hmm. seen that here um, in our country in in terms of uh, sports teams being plagued with COVID. But going back to Kyrie Irving, he is an unvaccinated athlete, um, you know, just like um, original story. And he cannot play in New York City because of our rules regarding um, indoor venues and and stadiums to be vaccinated. So right now he's playing on the road for the Nets, but there is a way he can rejoin the team full time. If the Brooklyn Nets decide to pay $5,000 per home game, he'll be allowed to play because of the New York City mandate and the fines that go along with it. So the Nets originally were really hoping he would eventually crack under pressure and get vaccinated, but he's still not giving in. So right now, the Nets are in a, a tough spot of having him as a part-time player. He's one of the superstars in the Nets, one of the main three athletes they have on that team, and he's being stubborn and not being a team player by not getting vaccinated. So we'll see if the Nets move to actually paying the fine to accommodate Kyrie Irving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, speaking of vaccinations, uh, Rachel's got something to say about Pfizer CEO and a new possible Omicron vaccine. Uh, So we're going to talk about that in just a couple minutes. 
Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. You are listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-up Call on 88.7 FM, Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on Hofstra Morning Wake-up Call do not reflect the views of Hofstra University, 88.7 FM, WRHU, as well as its management. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Your morning show team will be back right after these updates. Welcome back to Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call. We're back continuing our conversation about coronavirus and about the Omicron variant. So the CEO of Pfizer says that there might be a vaccine actually targeting the Omicron variant coming soon. Um, as we've seen the spike, especially in the past month or so, um, of Omicron plaguing everything. The symptoms are not as severe, but it seems like everyone's getting COVID. Um, we've seen it with our own circles of, of people we know um, in our own community, and it's becoming more and more common, but it's becoming more and more of a problem. Um, so Pfizer in particular is looking to target the Omicron variant with a vaccine. It's expected in March. The goal is preventing um, infection from COVID, and Moderna is actually looking to do the same, releasing their own Omicron vaccine in the fall if necessary. Um, but recent studies have shown that the current vaccines are not as effective in preventing infection. Um, as we've seen last year, breakthrough infections were very uncommon, very rare in terms of the Delta variant. But now we've seen um, many people who have the first and second dose get COVID still. Um, and even according to a study from the UK Health Security Agency, um, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are only about 10% effective at preventing symptomatic infection from Omicron about four months or 20 weeks after the second dose. Um, but that same study did say that two doses still provide good protection against severe illness and booster shots are up to 75% effective at preventing symptomatic infection, according to that same study. So it looks like that there's a lot of urgency on getting the booster shot. Um, but in terms of actually targeting the Omicron variant, the peak is starting to decline. We're kind of looking at signs that show that this may be over soon, or at least the wave from Omicron. But do you think people will be willing to actually get a vaccine targeted just for Omicron? Do you think that'll be a challenge convincing the population to get a new vaccine? Yeah, I think we've seen already this hesitancy with the booster and people saying, you know, if we're going to have to get the booster every year or every six months or uh, however long amount of time that they don't want to do that, that people thought it was going to be two vaccines and that was it and then everything was going to be good. It's very clear, I think, to all of us that we still don't know the best ways to combat the virus. We're having to work through this in real time because it did happen so, you know, short a time ago. So while we have all these different vaccines and boosters and possibly getting this new one in March, I think it's going to continue to change as we learn more about COVID. This isn't going to be the last variant that we see, Omicron. Right. There's going to be another one. And hopefully you know, we'll just continue to learn. I actually, I got COVID when I had both of my first and my second vaccines uh, from Pfizer. And the most important thing for me is that I was completely asymptomatic, which is a huge benefit to the vaccines. Um, even if they're not completely preventative of being able to keep you from not getting sick uh, with, the, with the virus, it does help you as in you don't have to go to the hospital. Uh, you might not have to be put on a ventilator you know all those things are really really scary and deadly so at least with these vaccines we're able to halt that portion of it and hopefully in the future as science continues and we keep learning more about the virus we'll be able to you know get new shots and have more things come out like this one 
that will just keep us even more safe. At least with Omicron, we we're seeing that hospitalizations and deaths have been on the decline. But in terms of booster shots, you know, technically the flu shot every year is a booster shot. And as you know about the flu vaccine um, or about the flu in general, it usually spikes in colder weather. So usually doctors will encourage people to get the flu vaccine in the fall, usually November. Um, so I think that eventually we'll figure out a definite timeline in terms of when to get boosted, which vaccine to take. But I think, as Becca mentioned, this is working in real time. We don't know about this. This is so new. Um, we're trying to adapt and, and land on our feet every single day. So I think the confusion and hesitancy is really coming from changing guidelines. And I think that scientists don't want to come out with something unless they're sure. And, and it's proven that facts can change and especially um, studies can definitely redirect our goals in, in fighting this virus. But Luke, what do you think about all this? I, I think most likely that what's probably going to happen in terms of COVID eventually, I'm not saying in necessarily the near future, uh, but it'll probably turn into something like an endemic like the flu, for example. Um, but that issue, of course, is then still getting everyone boosted or vaccinated after that time, too. Like, I know mm -hmm. people that, you know, they have, you know, flu shots and clinics and this like that. People don't get flu shots. I'm like, I get the flu shot. You, know, you gotta <laughs> make sure you stay safe. You know, the craziest thing is I was looking up stuff. People still get the Black Death in the United States. Apparently in 2015, 16 people got the bubonic plague and four people died. That's interesting. So it's in, you know, So even if there's still diseases that you would have thought, oh, they're gone by now, they're still here. I think mm -hmm. it was last year one person got it, but they did not die from it. I so, remember that. That was yeah. like, it, it caused fear because we were all so traumatized from COVID. Like, what if this actually ramps up again? Um, but it, it's a challenge thinking about if modern medicine can have a new vaccine for every variant because it takes so much time to develop a vaccine that targets um, the protein and the spikes in COVID. Um, so it, it's it's difficult thinking about how we're always, it seems, one step behind the virus. But I think as long as we're proactive, listen to science and also get on the same page with everybody. But that's the biggest challenge. But, you know, we'll hopefully get there at some point when we can. Uh, but otherwise, hopefully we can do what we can and, you know, get vaccinated, boosted, all that stuff. So because we can't keep living with so many outbreaks. I know that some people say that Omicron is, is just a cold because the symptoms aren't as bad, but it's still preventing a lot of normal things from operating, even looking at the NHL, right? Teams have been getting COVID. It's been running through the teams, coaches, goalies, I, ever, players, um, staff members. I know the Islanders, we had to cancel so many games, at least 11 by now because of the COVID crisis. And it's creating this unfair circumstance in the league. And I still don't think that this year's Stanley Cup will be completely fair only because certain teams were hit with COVID early on. Um, their best players were out. The farm teams had to step in. Now there's taxi squads. So I think it, it definitely creates many challenges. And I think that the NHL is only one example of how we can't just live with COVID. We have to get this behind us and work together to calm down the, the spread and the surge. Um, but eventually it will be an endemic, as Luke pointed out, hopefully, and then this won't um, disrupt daily life anymore. I'm just, uh, I'm curious, uh, Rachel, do you think there's going to be a bubble again for the NHL? I honestly don't think so, but I think they might extend the season. That's not based on anything. I have no inside knowledge. I have no idea what's going to happen. But because they were supposed to go to the Olympics next month, and that's been canceled and shut down, it gives them February to make up those games, but certain teams have a real uphill battle in terms of rescheduling, and it's really difficult in terms of finding arena space and, and stadium space. So I think that will be a big issue, but um, I think the wrap-up of the season will be extremely interesting, especially looking at Canada right now. They can't have spectators, 
right now. So the NHL postponed games that were supposed to take place in Canada because they can't have fans. And even though that does kind of point to the NHL as a very money-hungry um, move to make, um, there is a 50-50 deal with the players and leagues because um, the players, their salaries, that's 50% of revenue, and that's already been delegated. So um, the teams are actually losing money every game that's not played with fans because about 75% of re revenue comes from games and fans and stuff. Um, so they're trying to work that out this way. The player's salary doesn't have to be decreased in the next three years to make up for it. So it's all very complicated. I think this was a great roundtable discussion about COVID, um, but let's move on to something more positive. Yeah, Rachel, you have a kind of a funny story for us that I know I was giggling out when I saw it on there. Um, alpacas escaping in California. What is up with that? Yeah, so even though here on Long Island, we don't get to see alpacas very often, uh, in California, two alpacas escaped enclosure and they went on a whole two hour adventure in the Bay Area. So last weekend, two alpacas in Oakland um, took an adventure away from their home, away from their owner. Their names are Boogie and Woogie. <laughs> Isn't that interesting, guys? That's really cute. Their father and son, they went through parks, an underpass. They wandered around a neighborhood, everything. There's a viral video that shows the two alpacas roaming on the streets uh, in, in front of cars, stopping oh traffic. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Um, and the owner is very thankful for their safety and that they returned home safely. Um, and neighbors worked together to collect both alpacas, and they pretty much went on this massive hunt to get both alpacas and bring them home. This is crazy. Imagine, Luke, Becca, imagine if you saw an alpaca walking across campus. What would your, what would your thoughts be on that? I don't think I've ever seen an alpaca in real life, like, so close to me. Not They're even big. at, like, a zoo or anything. They're tall. Yeah, I think I would be scared, honestly, if I saw it in my car. <laughs> um, but two hours away from their home, that's a that's a long trip for them. I'm surprised that they were able to find them. I mean, glad they were able to find them, but I guess alpacas stick out in yeah. California, so <laughs> it must not have been too difficult. Um, but Boogie and Woogie, that's so cute. And I'm glad they're home safe back with their owner. With uh, Boogie and Woogie reminds me of the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy by the Andrews Sisters. I don't remember that song. He's <laughs> Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, Company B. You know, like that kind of song. Um, but no, I mean, it's definitely a very interesting thing to have. Um, apparently, I was reading that, like, the owner was like, oh, you know, Boogie's looking for a mate. You know, he likes long walks in the pasture, never looks on his phone. Can't, same can't be said for Larry the Bird, because when he goes on dates, he's only limited 240 characters. So it's interesting. <laughs> but uh, no, I think it's, a, it's certainly an interesting story. I don't know what I would think if I'm, like, you know, in the city and I see an alpaca. I think, like, if it just, like, walks across the street, a taxi's going to be, like, stopping like crazy. It's going to say, I'm walking here. What are you doing? You know? So I don't know what to tell you, but... Yeah, I think New Yorkers would be more rude if they saw an alpaca. I think people yeah. in California are probably more welcoming. I, I think it, it would be a, a pain to be stuck in traffic if there's an alpaca on the road. I think that annoyance can come by, but I think the alpacas aren't attacking anyone, right? Because that would be kind of weird. Um, so I think it, it looked like a really great community effort to bring the alpacas back home. Yeah, I was thinking about that too, like the traffic. Imagining this happening in Hempstead or just on Long Island in general. Like, I just, I mean, personally, in Tennessee, in my hometown, which is where I'm from, it would not be uncommon for us to see a cow get loose on the side of the street. Or sometimes we even had cows 
that would come into our front yard. They'd get out from my neighbor's house because he had like a bunch of cows and chickens and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they would come into our yard and just like graze in our front yard. And they're cows, so like they're not really going to do anything. They're pretty chill animals. But that wasn't something that was uncommon. We would be driving down the road, see it on the side of the road and be like, oh, no, we got to call Jerry like his cow got loose. Let him know it's down here. Um, <laughs> but definitely a completely different situation if that were to happen you know, on Long Island. I have a question. Have you ever yes. seen a baby cow before? Is it true yes. fluffy? Well, I've. <laughs> um, yes, I have seen a baby cow before. We actually almost got one when I was younger, like at my house. Uh, but we ended up not getting it. Oh. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, they are fluffy. What was the baby cow's name? Do you know? It wasn't named. Wow. You can't name them because then you're not going to want to eat them. Mm. That's true. <laughs> you get too attached. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have to be careful with that. But yeah, I mean, alpacas are, I guess, a lot taller than cows as well. Again, I've never seen an alpaca, but I would love to. Last question. Would you guys want to own an alpaca if you had the option? Hmm, I'm not really. Hmm, that's a hard one because I'm thinking of all the work that would go into owning an alpaca. Like you have to clean up after them. You have to like have their little enclosure. Like what do you even feed alpacas? But you can say you own an alpaca. That's so cool. That's like the best fun fact. First day of classes. <laughs> fun fact about yourself. I have two pet alpacas. Are they named Boogie and Woogie? <laughs> <laughs> I think in New York City, actually, it's legal to own like chickens in your backyard. Like that's like my favorite New York City like law. Really? Yeah. It's like not you're not that's allowed so to That's so random. And there's so many things you can't have in New York City. Like can't you not have like a ferret or something? Yeah, I don't know why. But there's you can so have many chickens. Weird rules. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. That. They only just put sports betting in a couple of days ago, so I guess that was a big deal, but it's an interesting place the five boroughs for sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, that was a really sweet story to end on. Two little alpacas escaping. Um, I would hope that if anybody saw anything like that in Hempstead, we would also come together in a community way, just like they did in Oakland, <laughs> and bring them back home. <laughs> well, that was our Thursday morning wake-up call. Make sure you tune in for next week. We have shows Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday from 8 to 9 a.m. This was a wonderful first show with you guys, Rachel and Luke. Thank you so much for coming on with me this morning. Sounds good. Good to close things out for the week, I guess. So yeah. certainly a good time. Thanks for having us. It was great to be here. The best way to start a Thursday morning is with you guys. Exactly. Exactly. And we will be right back here next week on Thursday. So make sure you catch us then right here at 88.7 FM, Radio Hofstra University. WRHU is underwritten in part by Christopher Cavallero and ARC Excess and Surplus, LLC. ARC Excess and Surplus is a wholesale insurance brokerage that offers professional liability products and services. Information about ARC.